privilege to be here at GYC Northwest and to see lots of smiling faces and to hear beautiful music, to hear powerful gospel messages. I have been immensely blessed this week. How about you? Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do is begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin this morning's message, The Faith of Jesus, Why He Left. I'm going to kneel, invite you to bow your heads. Sweet Jesus, I feel an extra awareness this morning of my need. And I'm asking that you would move me aside, that you would keep me from getting in your way. I ask that you would keep your promise to be with me. I pray that you would rebuke the devil and all of his minions in any form of darkness that would abide in this place and in my own heart and mind. And I pray that you would speak with power, with conviction and clarity. I'm reminded of the words of a song that if you would choose to use me, my Savior, in spite of my fears and all of my failures, I'm not much to look at, but whatever I am, I'm yours. Jesus, use me, I'm yours is my plea. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I work with ARTV. Uh, ARTV Now is our website if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing. Um, and I'd love to speak with you if you're a creative photographer, videographer, editor, scriptwriter. I'd love to speak with you over the course this weekend if that uh, could be afforded us and we have more cards at the registration table. Here's why I have this burden. We're told that the faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? What is that? Jesus becoming our sin bearer, that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Taj alluded to that last night. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. And one of the best ways for us to understand this is what is also referred to uh, in the Spirit of Prophecy as the simple story of the cross. The simple story of the cross of Christ, his suffering and dying for the world, his resurrection and ascension, his mediation in the sinner's behalf before the Father, subdues and breaks the hard and sinful heart. He brings the sinner, the sinner to repentance. The Holy Spirit sets the matter before him in a new light, and the sinner realizes that sin must be a tremendous evil to cause such a sacrifice to atone for it. How grievous must sin be that no less a remedy than the death of the Son of God could save man from the consequence of his guilt? Why was this done in behalf of man? It was because God loved him and was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, believe in Jesus as a personal Savior, and have life eternal. So this is why we're told in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And what is implied in that is that God places a high value on the people that he's seeking. And it also implies that he's taking the initiative to bring about the solution, even though we are in a horrible condition. And this is laid out in the book of Hosea, which is the theme book, um, largely a later chapter, but this is laid out throughout Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2 and verse 13, God says that his people were going after other lovers and they forgot him. But then he responds in this amazing and unexpected way. You would assume that he would cast them off and move on, but he doesn't. 
says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the darkness and speak comfort to her. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. When God sweeps us off our feet, even when we've spit in his face, it changes our view of God. That we're no longer feeling like groveling slaves, potentially, with our unhealthy views of God, but he's my husband. He's the love of my life. Then he says that I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Now, what has to take place for this to become a reality? How does this amazing transaction take place? Well, the next chapter in chapter 3 begins with a price needing to be paid to buy back the unfaithful woman. That's the gospel. So what I'd like to do is share with you something that is just what Ellen White refers to, the simple story of the cross, the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14 that, And this gospel will be preached, and all the world is a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. He seems to be rather specific here. He, he wants a specific gospel shared with people. Revelation 14 alludes to this as well, that the everlasting gospel will go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Well, what is this everlasting gospel? We're given a hint in manuscript 32, 1896, that the message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel. The same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Something about what was preached in the garden is indeed still the everlasting gospel. It's not something that just is new and and comes up later. This same theme has been all throughout salvation history. As soon as man was lost, man had a savior. There was a solution in mind immediately. So what are we told in Eden? First of all, that the promised seed, his heel will be bruised. What else are we told? That tunics of skin, something has to die to cover the shame and the nakedness. Something has to suffer to cover the shame and nakedness of these precious people who have now been lost. What does the sanctuary teach us? That a lamb is slain. Something must suffer for the sins of the people. What did the prophet say? That a Messiah will suffer. What did Jesus say? I will suffer. And the disciples hated this message. They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted someone to dispossess the Romans and regain the land. They did not understand the true power of what God sent Jesus to do. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, discussing with the disciples, is beside himself. And he says, didn't you know that the Messiah had to suffer? What do you think the apostles preach in the book of Acts? That a Messiah suffered, and then we see in the book of Revelation about a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In short, Jesus will suffer. This is the gospel that has to go to this world. But how often do we hear messages that highlight the sufferings of Christ? 
And I'm not talking about a Mel Gibson bloodbath. I'm talking about the true nature of the sufferings of Christ that were not only physical, they had other components to them that were deeply, deeply uh, crippling to the Son of God. And we'll cover those. And we wonder why it is that our younger and older generations are wrestling with unhealthy pictures of God and a lack of an assurance of salvation. 3ABN's pastoral department is getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have zero assurance of salvation. I've been to 22 of our academies and a handful of our colleges, and I see the same issue. We seem to be missing some of the core fundamentals of Christianity, of understanding how God views us, how to have healthy views of God, to know that the gospel actually includes me, not just everybody else. Sometimes we wrestle that the promises of God apply to everybody else but me, because I'm a mess, because I've gone too far, because I've been a harlot, like we see in the book of Hosea. So we do have a need here. So how do we deal with this need? We behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that sin, in that sin, is included my sin, my responsibility. So Jesus risked the eternal fellowship of the Godhead and his own eternal existence to see you saved. This was not some chore or some errand that can be done easily. There was a high cost and a very high risk. Why would someone take such a high, high risk for a people who seem to not appreciate and not value what is about to be done? Why would he do that? The faith of Jesus. He not only sees you as you are, he sees you for what you could be. And he's hoping that by treating you as what you could be, it would awaken within you a desire to be that very person, to be that very thing. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Taj talked about this. So... Notice that Jesus did not write a check for the price of sin. Jesus literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set you free. And if you understand the definitions of shame and guilt, this takes on a greater meaning because guilt says that I've done something wrong and it points you to your need of a savior. But shame says that I am something wrong. It causes you to identify with your sin and in turn gets you so filled with unworthiness that you feel that you can't come to Christ. God uses one and Satan uses the other. But according to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, you no longer have to identify yourself with your sin because Jesus became that sin in your stead. And he's offering you his righteousness in exchange I want you to imagine with me this morning that you are standing before a holy God and a holy law with no mediator. And you're bearing one of your sins. Only one. Now, I'm left with the impression that you're probably somewhat like me and you've committed more than one sin in your lifetime. Am I correct in this? Yes. But I just want you to imagine with me that you're standing before a holy God and a holy law with just one of your sins and no mediator. What thoughts, right, what emotions come to mind when you think of yourself in that position? I need verbal feedback. What comes to your mind when you're in that situation? Fear. Fear. What else? Hopelessness. Anyone else? Shame. It's a great one. Anyone else? Condemnation. Worthless. It's a horrifying picture, isn't it? You would be struck dead in a moment from terror and horror if you had no mediator in this situation. 
But I want you to imagine with me the shame, the condemnation, and the unmingled wrath of Almighty God for every sin. From the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall in the garden, all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ. That includes every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. And all of humanity's sins that they've ever committed and ever will commit. All of this composite shame, condemnation, guilt, and unmingled wrath of Almighty God just amassed in a pile somewhere. Then I want you to imagine that all of this is now heaped upon the shoulders of one man at one point in time. Now remember, you told me how you would feel for just one of your sins. But imagine this corporate composite guilt all heaped upon one person at one point in time. This, beloved, is why Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 26 that his soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He's bearing the composite guilt and shame and condemnation of all sin the moment that he sets foot in that garden. And it's horrifying to Jesus. In fact, the moment that he crosses the threshold of the Garden of Gethsemane, he collapses to the ground in agony. The disciples literally have to pick Jesus up. He takes a few steps and collapses a second time to the ground. And as he gets back up and stumbles into the garden, the psychological agony is so intense as he's praying to his father that he's now physiologically bleeding through his pores. Jesus' body is freaking out right now because of the stress and the weight that he's contending with emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. And the disciples have never seen a Jesus like this before. Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected all the time. Two naked demoniacs are running at him at the Gadarenes. He stands like a rock, rebukes the demons, and the text later says that they're seated and clothed in the right minds. In another situation, a demoniac stands up in the middle of a church and says, What are we to do with you, Jesus? Jesus rebukes the demon and the man sits down and calms down. We see Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 when the waves are crashing over the boat. Jesus is asleep in the boat. Nothing rattles this guy. Nothing does anything to shake this man. But yet at this point in time, the disciples are seeing a Jesus that they have no idea what to do with. Because all of their confidence is based upon a man who's always confident. Who always has the right answer. Who always has ways to provide for the need. And yet Jesus is wrestling tenaciously right now. And they don't know what to do. You and I, under the same circumstances, had this hardware built within us when we're overwhelmed that we just check out, right, emotionally and psychologically. We just turn into vegetables, right? You get the thousand-yard stare. Anybody who's ever worked in trauma, like in, in the ER and other situations, you know that look where people are just kind of gazing. They have this glossed-over look. We have that ability to check out emotionally and psychologically. But the problem is, Jesus isn't afforded that option. There's no escape hatch. Jesus can't run to, to you know, to, to television. Jesus can't run to Facebook. Jesus can't run to something else to escape what he's contending with. He has to wrestle and suffer, and Jesus suffers alone. And we're told in Desire of Ages something that is heartbreaking. That in this moment, Jesus is longing for human sympathy and affection. Do you know that about Jesus? Longing for human sympathy and affection when suffering for your sins. And you know what he gets? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
Jesus suffers alone because the disciples are sleeping. They can't handle it. And they leave this poor man to suffer on his own. And then this voice of sophistry enters into the head and heart of Jesus, tempting him to leave every one of you behind. These people don't appreciate you, Jesus. You're wasting your time, man. Just walk. Why exert all this effort and agony for people who... The very people you thought would be with you, James, John, and Peter, them of all people will be with me when I need them. What are they doing right now, Jesus? And what are they doing? They're sleeping. And Jesus is tempted in this moment by this sophistry and foolishness from Satan to leave all of us. And yet Jesus continues... And then he offers three prayers to the Father, literally asking God the Father to change his mind. Is there any other way? He's wrestling with this chalice. He doesn't know what to do. And is there any other way? And this cup that we're referring to here is the same cup mentioned in Revelation chapter 14. The cup of God's unmingled wrath. And he's drinking this thing to the dregs so that no one else will have to. And yet people will still spurn it. They'll still reject it and choose their own way. And he drinks it anyway. He continues anyway. The unmingled wrath of God is now being poured out upon God. But as he's praying for release... Your face comes into his mind, and this is what leads him to say, nevertheless. What leads Jesus to say, nevertheless, is the thought of you. And not just a corporate you, an individual you. You individually possess value in the eyes of God. This is why Jesus suffers. Because he believes in you, because he believes that you're worth it. And so he says, nevertheless, if this is what it takes, I'll go. I'll continue. And then we're told this beautiful line in Desire of Ages. That his decision is made and he will save man at any cost to himself. But she continues. God suffered with his son and there was silence in heaven. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief? They watched the Father separating his beams of love, light, and glory from his beloved Son. They would better understand how offensive in his sight is sin. If we thought of that, we wouldn't do what we do. We wouldn't continue and persist in our selfishness, in our pride... In our bitterness and unforgiveness. If we saw that our bitterness and unforgiveness caused this, we wouldn't continue. And it brings amazement to the angels. And then God literally, there's this heartbreaking picture in Desire of Ages, and it's also alluded to in the Gospel of Luke, where as Jesus suffers, God literally sends the angel from the right hand of the Father down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the picture that's told is literally that he cradles the head of Jesus in his bosom and speaks tender words of encouragement to him, reminding him of the promises of God. Reminding him, do you remember at the baptism where he said that this is my beloved son? 
It's still true. Do you remember at the Mount of Transfiguration that this is my son? Listen to him. It's still true. It's dark, but he's here. And this literally is what gives Jesus strength to go on because we're told that he would have died in the garden had this not taken place. He never would have even made it to the cross had this not taken place. And then as he brings the disciples down to the gate, Judas comes and greets him. And Jesus is betrayed by a kiss. And you would think in this moment there would be frustration, there would be something, but not with Jesus. You know what he does? He musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Friend. Some of us have people in our life right now that we don't have the ability to refer to as friend. Because what they did was too hard, it was too wrong, and I just can't. You can with his help, amen? If he can call Judas friend, you can call them friend by his strength. We are not going to experience revival and reformation in the Seventh-day Adventist Church until we repent and reconcile our differences. We have to. What do you think the disciples were doing for ten days? They were searching their own hearts. They were making things right. Don't kid yourselves. That if you just fill out a checklist and do this, this, and this, but if you don't repent and reconcile your differences with one another, we're not going to see the latter rain. We're not going to see that power from heaven. We have to. And it's seeing the cross of Christ that leads us to repentance and to recognize that I know better than them. Were not for the grace of God, I'd be in a worse situation than them. And if I had their life story and the circumstances that led to where they are right now, I'd probably do the same thing. The cross is meant to level that ground. And then Peter has a brilliant idea. He cuts Malchus's ear off, thinking that he's doing Jesus a favor. And Jesus tells him, put your sword in its place, Peter. They aren't taking my life. I'm giving myself for them. I'm laying it down of my own accord. Put your sword in its place, man. And then he's brought before this unjust trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. It's a mockery of justice. And then we're told in Isaiah chapter 52 that Jesus is literally beaten beyond the point of recognition. You can't even recognize who this man is anymore when they're done with him. And I'll leave it at that. And then he's brought before the Jews. What do you think they had to say about the man who came to save them? We will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar. And give us Barabbas. The very people he came to save. The very Messiah they've been longing for. And this is how they respond. But before we're too hard on the Jews, we have to realize that each time we choose our choice sins over Jesus, we're saying the exact same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. Give me Barabbas. We do the same thing, guys. We're no better than them. All of us were not for the grace of God deserve to die because of our sins. 
And then he's brought to the cross. They nail him to this demonic means of torture. They heave the cross in the air and they slam it into the ground on which it's prepared. And every nerve, muscle, and sinew of his body is yanked downward. And fire runs through his nervous system. And then we're told this strange line that his physical pain was hardly felt in comparison with the psychological, emotional, and spiritual agony that he's contending with. Hardly felt. And then he's given these taunting jeers of unbelief from the people around him. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, save yourself and us and come down from that cross. But irony of ironies, it's because Jesus is the Son of God that he's not going to come down from that cross. And he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. And this voice of sophistry returns. Jesus, you're wasting your time. Are you hearing them? Listen to them. These people, you see something in them? They don't see anything in you. Why would you choose to see something in them? Sophistry, nonsense in the voice in the head of Jesus, and he won't respond. And then the only consistent thing and reliable thing that Jesus has had in his life for 33 and a half years is the presence and the approval of his Father. And now that's gone. Jesus feels overwhelmingly alone at this stage upon the cross. And then words come out of the mouth of Jesus that you would never expect to hear from someone who's been in eternal fellowship with the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus. You ever wonder why it is that it looks like midnight at noonday? We're given some insight. In that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness his pavilion and conceals his glory from human eyes. God and his holy angels were beside the cross. Are you hearing me this morning? The reason, the irony is, when Jesus feels that he's the farthest from the Father that he's been for 33 and a half years, he's literally the closest to the Father he's been for 33 and a half years. But Satan has cast an impenetrable cloud of darkness between him and the Father, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know. But we're told that the Father was with his Son, yet his presence was not revealed, and had his glory flash forth from the crowd, or through the cloud, Every human beholder would have been destroyed. It was actually an act of mercy from God the Father, so that even these people, who we would think deserve to die, are given a chance to respond to what they're seeing right now. This is the love of God the Father on display, and the mercy of God on display, while administering the justice they deserve to His own Son. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people, there was none with him. And you know why? Because there's times that we tread the winepress alone, and there's no one with us. So that he can be that comforter that understands. And Jesus went through this for you. Even if it was only you. 
And there's one thing going through Jesus' mind right now that keeps him from coming off that cross. You know what it is? It's you. It's you. It's the thought of losing you. Jesus cannot bear that. He would rather cease existing for eternity for you to have a chance than to live in an eternal existence and you not have a chance. That's the faith of Jesus. He sees things in you that you don't see in you. He sees things in the people's life around you that you don't like, that bother you, that you think in your times of frustration and and anger, he sees those things in them too. He sees it in all of us, and he continues nonetheless. And then we're told that Jesus, when he's on the cross, literally cannot see through the portals of the tomb. Jesus is absolutely sure of the fact that he will never see the light of day again. He will never see the Father again. And that even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, he's not going to be there to see it. This is what's going through the experiential mind of Jesus while he's on the cross, enduring the deafening silence of God. This is why it says in John chapter 13 and verse 1, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the other end of himself, to the other end of his embarrassment. And then Jesus, after the resurrection, ascends into heaven to see if the offering that was given was sufficient. And the angels erupt in praise. And Jesus looks at them and says, no. No. And he presses into the presence of the Father and he asks, was it enough? Was it enough? Can they be with me where I am? And when the Father gives him the affirmation, yes, and I assure you it was a loud one, then Jesus accepts their praise. Then he accepts their adoration, but he would not until he was sure that this was the case. Jesus refused to receive the homage of his people until he knew that his sacrifice had been accepted by the Father and until he'd receive assurance from God himself that this atonement for the sins of the people had been full and ample, that through his blood they might gain eternal life. Jesus immediately ascended to heaven and presented himself before the throne of God, showing the marks of shame and cruelty upon his brow, his hands and feet, But he refused to receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. And he also refused the adoration of the angels. As he had refused the homage of Mary until the father signified that his offering was accepted. Do you think you matter to Jesus? And in our grieving and in our frustrations and hardship, we have the audacity to tell him that he doesn't care about us. The Israelites did this. And his response was, are you kidding me? Can a nursing mother forget her child? Surely they may forget. But I have not forgotten you. I've inscribed your name on the palms of my hands. That's Calvary language. When you're wrestling with, can God love me? Can God accept me? Is he even here? Does he even care? Your name is inscribed upon the palms of his hands. Amen? 
This is why Revelation 12 says that the heavens should rejoice and woe to the earth. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, this is in response to the cross event, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And say hallelujah this morning. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, and woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devils come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time, but he's a defeated foe. Amen? This victory not only made your salvation secure, it actually made heaven, the angels, and all of the redeemed more secure. We're told in Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889, in an article referred to what was secured by the death of Christ, we're literally told that the cross guards the angels and the unfallen worlds from apostasy. Not just us. It was such a profound event that it's guarding all of humanity and all from apostasy in the second, uh, in the new earth Heaven and the unfallen worlds, they've made up their mind regarding their view of the love and character of God. But now the case has been moved to you, to each of us in our hearts individually. And the question is, what decision are you going to make? Whose case will you believe? The accuser of the brethren who projects his character upon God? Or Jesus who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what he's like? Take a look at me. So if you're wondering, can God accept you this morning? Calvary says yes and amen. Yes. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. The cross is just this magnet of grace when we encounter it and it draws us to him. Jeremiah 31.3, we're told in John 12.32, that I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The faith of Jesus awakens a response of faith in the people. This is what it's meant to do. Jesus pours out his life to the dregs knowing that you can walk. Knowing that you could leave, but it says in Isaiah 42, verse 4, that he will not fail nor be discouraged. Jesus is a relentless pursuing lover, and he will not stop loving you until you breathe your last breath. But even then, he's going to miss you for eternity. That's the gospel. Even the loved are missed. Even the lost are missed. This is the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the weight that Jesus places on you individually. And this is the message that has to go to the world in our lifetime uh, if we're going to go home. If you want to go home, we have to tell them. This is the message that Jesus preached. It's the message the Old Testament foretold. And it's the message that the New Testament church fell in love with. And Jesus would have to go through all of this to redeem one. And we have to understand the fact that all of us are responsible for this. I individually am responsible for this. My sins killed Jesus. Mine. My sins are responsible for what I just explained. And that should do something to the human heart. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says that the goodness of God leads to repentance. You want to find repentance? Look again to the cross. Look again to the goodness of God in spite of our unfaithfulness, our unworthiness, and our lack of appreciation for what has been done for us.
But this was not just Jesus coming and doing something awesome for humanity. Some of us have this view that Jesus came to convince the Father to love us. But we're told in Romans 5 and verse 8 that it was because God loved us that he sent Jesus. Right? It wasn't like that he bought this lemon car and realized that this thing is a beater and he was disappointed. Right? I'll just be brutally honest with you this morning. You're way uglier than you think you are. And so am I. And God knows the depths of our depravity and our brokenness. And in spite of that, the faith of Jesus pierces through our brokenness and says, I see something better. Would you respond today? So if Jesus can forgive you and God the Father can forgive you, why is it that we wrestle so strongly with accepting the fact that we're accepted? Why won't you believe the things about you that God believes? Satan believes them too. That's why you're tempted. That's why you're discouraged. That's why you have no self-worth. But we're told in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Why? Because by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many and he will bear their iniquities. In short, you're justified, he's satisfied. This is a testimony given to someone who is wrestling to believe that the goodness of God could apply to them. The Lord has given me a message for you, and not for you only, but also for other faithful souls who are troubled by doubts and fears regarding their acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I bet you there's a lot of us in here this morning. I've had these moments. And his word to you is, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I've called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You're mine. You desire to please the Lord, and you can do this how? By believing his promises. By believing what the word of God says about you. You want to make God happy? Receive the faith of Jesus today. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience. And he bids you be still and know that I am God. You've had a time of unrest, but Jesus says to you, come unto me and I will give you rest. And the joy of Christ in the soul is worth everything. And then are they glad because they're privileged to rest in the arms of everlasting love. And that word rest doesn't have to scare you or make you uncomfortable. The people who rest in Christ do far more for Christ than those who don't. Amen? Rest is not inactivity. Christ went through all of this because he saw in you a pearl of great price. He saw a value in you that you don't see in you. And he's asking you to respond with a reciprocating faith. This is what Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 1. He says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And now today we know why. This is amazing. For it's the power of God. It's what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. His pursuing faith in us to faith, our reciprocating faith in him. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that text in Habakkuk in the Hebrew originally reads, the just shall live by his faith. When we encounter the faith of Jesus, it awakens a reciprocating faith in Jesus to want to do what's pleasing to him, to want to go where he leads. I want to close with this testimony here, and it's gorgeous. Write down this, this, this reference here and plaster it on your wall and share it with all your friends. Manuscript Releases, Volume 10, 175.1. We'll close with this. 
The message from God to me for you is, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This is again a personal testimony given to a discouraged Christian. From a tender, sweet lady who's been there before. Amen. The message from God to me for you is, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. If you have nothing else to plead before God, but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. Amen? How many people here have nothing to offer Jesus right now? You can claim this. Amen? It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you're safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. If you have nothing to offer Jesus but this one promise, you told me, my life has been a mess, it's been filled with failure, I can't get anything right, every promise I've made to you have been like ropes of sand. If you just have this one promise, you told me, Jesus, that if I come to you, you will not cast me out. In that moment, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God, we're told. This precious promise is available to you today. But this was not just intended for you. The great sin of the Jewish nation was that they thought that the promises of God were only for them. And they deprived the surrounding nations of this precious message. We cannot make that same mistake. And the thing is, when someone truly encounters the everlasting gospel, it does something. You no longer live your life for me. You recognize that selfishness is Satan's kingdom principle and not God's. God's principle is self-sacrificing love. And you realize that the very value that I've come to understand that God places on me is the same value he places for the person that I cannot stand the most. And that I owe Christ to the world, to the Jew, to the rich, to the poor, to the Greek, to any and all. We are indebted to them, Paul says. We owe this to the world. What are we waiting on? If this truly is the everlasting gospel, and it's meant to go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, this is not just a message for preachers. And these are not literal angels flying. This is your individual gospel commission. Are you hearing me this morning? And should this be a burden? It should be a burden to want their souls to be one, But it shouldn't be something that you just feel like, "Ah, I just don't know if I could tell them. Like This is why so many people are inactive in their experience. They don't understand how amazing the gospel is. This is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God. You have in your midst the power of God. And the world needs it. Amen? And you know what the other thing is? Every human soul is pre-programmed to receive the faith of Jesus. It's what you were made for. And everyone knows it's like this language of the heart that you've been looking for your whole life. You've been looking for it in in drugs and alcohol and sex and human sympathy and climbing the corporate ladder, right? And and destroying the self-esteem of the people around you to feel better about yourself. Whatever the situation may be, 
that void that you're pre-programmed to receive, you're trying to fill it with this nonsense. This is where the answer is found. Amen? So what I'd like to do is encourage all of us today as we, as we close in prayer to respond. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you've gone through in life. I don't know what hardship has come your way. But Taj did such a beautiful job of communicating that these things are not the end. They're a means to an end, but they're not the end. And there may be situations that you're dealing with today that are crippling, that are difficult. Maybe you feel like you're in Gethsemane right now and God is just distant and you can't find him and you're, you're just suffering. We've seen today that there's a Savior who cares and who understands that pain better than anybody. And so if you've been holding back, if you've not gone all in, if you've recognized I've not given Jesus what he deserves. We talked about this a few nights ago. That it brought grief to Jesus that he did not receive from the disciples that which was due him. Jesus deserves better than I've given him. Far better. And I'm ashamed of myself for that. We can respond today, amen? And we can say by the faith and strength of Jesus, I want that to change. I want a life that glorifies God. I want a life that is winsome, that people realize there's something different about you. You're right, there is. Let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. He's the love of my life, and he'd love to hear from you. So I want to invite you to kneel with me as we close in prayer. Sweet Jesus, we see today that there is a price that has been placed upon us that we feel wholly unworthy of. We don't know what to do with it. And God, I pray that we would choose to accept the faith of Jesus in spite of how we feel, in spite of what our history is, in spite of what the accuser of the brethren continually reminds us of. I pray that in response to the faith of Jesus, we would find a faith in Jesus awakening in our hearts and minds and that we would go all in. God, we're told that there's going to be an army of youth rightly trained who finish this work. Lord, they have to understand this message. They have to receive it. And they need to be believed in by their leadership, by their mentors. And be sent forth to share it. The woman at the well didn't need to go to a Bible college. She didn't need a degree in theology. When she encountered the love of God for her in spite of her brokenness, she couldn't help but share. No appeals were made. But God, I pray that we would respond accordingly, that we would receive this, that we would share, because Paul says it is better to give than to receive, and he was speaking in the context of the gospel. I pray that that would be the case. Lord, forgive our sins today of choosing any and everything but you. And I pray that you would cover them with the blood of Jesus. And I pray that the, the law, the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus would overthrow the law of sin and death in our experience. That we would experience the power of transformation and salvation. And that there would be an army of youth and of just older youth <laughs> finishing this work in a way that's pleasing to you. Forgive our unbelief and may we receive your belief in us today, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.